Okay, so we're back in James, and uh, we're, we're back after having a week out from our series uh, last week. We had George Furwell with us. If you were here last week, then you would have experienced what it's like to hear from George. It was a great experience. Uh, I wasn't in the service, but I listened to it back on the, uh, on the audio in the week. And if you weren't here, do do that. It's a, it was a great um, privilege to hear from him. And as I was sitting there listening to the, the recording, I, I was thinking to myself, this really is a privilege, isn't it? Hearing from someone who's 80 years old, at the end of his Christian journey, who's lived a kind of all-out, radical life for Jesus, really from when he became a Christian as a young man. So he's looking back on decades of living with Jesus, and he's distilling his life lessons and his principles and, and sharing them with us. So it was a real privilege to hear from him. And George mentioned, actually, at the start of his message, how he often preaches from the book of James, the book that we're going through at the moment. And uh, the reason he likes to preach from that book is because he's really passionate about people putting their faith into action, not just being hearers of the word only, but doers of the word. And he he said he finds a lot of the time when he goes around, he finds Christians who seem uh, to really struggle and be incapable of doing perhaps even the smallest things that require putting their faith into action. So it's something he's really passionate about. And George is a great example of a life of consistency. Um, that He's lived that, that life for all those years. Um, he's put his faith into practice. And it was really inspiring. I found it inspiring to listen to him. Um, but if you're anything like me, uh, you may well have found that Monday morning feeling, after listening to something like that, uh, a bit perhaps deflating or... Um, discouraging even because we so often fail to live with that kind of consistency don't we we say we believe something but then in the week when we get back into the the daily rhythm of life and get back to the people that we spend most of our time with our family or our work colleagues we slip so quickly back into living like everyone else or not taking that step of faith or doing that risky thing or obeying in that radical way that, that George was speaking about. I know that's true of me. I, f- I fear people's opinions far too much to, to really uh, live in a, in a radical way as, I, as, I, as I, my heart wants to. I'm far more concerned about my own comfort than I am about the comfort of millions of people who are worse off than me, That one of the things that George is passionate about. So many ways that I see gaps in my life between what I believe and what I do. And I'm guessing I'm not alone in that I'm guessing there's lots of people here who feel that, that tension, that frustration. I believe this stuff, and I love Jesus, and I want to live for him, but then my life looks different. And there's this gap between what I believe and my actions. And it's that gap that is exactly what James is aiming at as he writes this letter. So James is, is writing this letter to address that gap between what we believe and, and what we do. And that's why it's a great letter for us to be studying as a church, because we as leaders, and I take it if you're part of this church, you want to be Christians who are growing. We're not staying where we are. And that's the heart of, of God behind James. So it's a really special letter. I'm really thrilled that we're studying it. It's a special letter for a couple of reasons. Um, one, it was one of the earliest letters that was written in the, in the New Testament. Um, probably only about 10, 15 years after Jesus um, rose and ascended to heaven. Another reason is that it was written by someone very close to Jesus, his half-brother, so, same mother, different father. And he lived with Jesus, grew up with him, and he was actually one of Jesus' biggest skeptics while Jesus was teaching and preaching. But after Jesus rose from the dead, James met Jesus. 
We learn in 1 Corinthians 15, James met the risen Jesus. And we don't know what happened in that conversation, what was said, what that encounter was like, but we know that it completely transformed James's life. It turned his life upside down. So he went from being a skeptic to being one of the most significant leaders in the early church. So he was one of the most uh, prominent leaders in the early church in Jerusalem. And so he's there in Jerusalem, and he hears about Christians who are living in other parts of Israel and outside of Israel who are saying they're Christians, but their lives show no evidence that they are following Jesus. They say they're Christians, they sign up to Christianity, but they seem completely unconcerned about following Jesus practically or obeying him. So James writes to those Christians and says, look, it's not enough to just say you believe in Jesus. You need to put it into practice. And we've seen over the last three weeks ways that James talks about that. He says, you should be joyful in your trials. He says, you should hear the word and, and do it. Don't be like a person who looks in the mirror and then just goes off and does something else. And last time, two weeks ago, we were thinking really practically about how it should make a difference to the way we welcome people into our church, people who aren't like us, people who perhaps don't fit in. And the passage we're looking at today is where James really kind of makes his case. And he makes his case theologically. He says, this is what I really want to say in this letter. It's not enough to just say you believe. It's got to be backed up by works. So let's read it. Um, James chapter 2. And we're going to read from verses 14 through to 26. Um, If you've got one of these Bibles, it's page 1012, 1012. Do you grab a Bible, by the way, if if there's one on the tables near you? um, That'll be helpful for the questions later as well, I'm sure. Okay, James 2, and I'll read from verse 14 through to the end of the chapter. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way also was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So you may or may not have heard of Abraham and Rahab, and we'll get into the details of that later. But do you see the point that James is trying to make? He's driving it home as forcefully as he can. Faith without works is dead. If your faith is not being lived out, it's not a living faith. 
Real faith has to result in a changed life. It has to. And he uses different approaches to make his point in this passage. So he takes an example from daily life. And then he he answers an objection to what he's saying. Then he takes another couple of examples from the Old Testament. So we'll just walk through the passage, kind of follow his line of argument, if you like. And then we'll pull out a couple of things of, well, what does it mean for us today? How, How does it look for us to be living with this kind of faith that works itself out? So the first thing James does is he he takes an example from daily life. That's in verse 15 to 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for their body, what good is that? Now this may have been something that James actually heard about happening in some of the churches he's writing to. Um, There were a lot of Christians in James' day who were very poor, living on the breadline. And there was no welfare system in those days, no benefits to fall back on. So people who were really in need would have relied on their community to help them. Um, We see an example of this working well in the early chapters of Acts, where the early church um, would sell their possessions, and they would sell their land, and they would give to people who were in need to make sure there were no poor people among them. That's an example of it working well, and this is an example of it not working, where there's someone in the church who is obviously poor, they haven't got clothes or food, and it's, it's evident to people that that's the case. And, and there are people in the church who have resources to help that person. And they, they don't. They say, go in peace, be, be warm. They say, they say words that kind of make them feel better. But there's no practical action to back that up. And James says, it's useless. He's pretty strong. He says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Just words if it's not backed up by actions, is, is pretty useless. That doesn't help the poor person. And that's an example from James's day. But it's still pretty relevant for us today, isn't it? The, the needs may not present themselves in such obvious ways. In our society, we're quite good at, at masking needs, actually, especially physical needs. But that doesn't mean they're not there. That doesn't mean there's not a lot of people in our town, even in our church, who are actually struggling and struggling to make ends meet. And it it may not just be physical needs. There may be very real emotional needs that are in our, our people, and certainly in our society, people who are lonely, people who just need community, people who are just low and need encouragement. There's all kinds of needs, and there's all kinds of ways in which we do actually have resources that we can meet those needs. And James is saying, if you see someone who has a need, and you have the ability to meet it and you don't give them what they need for the, for the body and, and food. You just say something to make yourself feel better but really you're too absorbed in your own needs or your own uh, contentment, your own comfort to, to, to meet someone else's need then well, what good is that? The point is if we see someone who has a need we have the resources to meet it and we don't help then he's saying there's, got, there's something wrong something doesn't quite match up there uh, this is hugely challenging, and I'm hugely challenged by this. And I think in our culture, we do have a lot more than we think we have. And this is something that's actually on our, on our hearts as a leadership. We're aware that in this area, we're, we're not yet really plugged into to serving in practical ways as, as we could be and as we long to be. So it's something we're praying about. And please pray with us. Pray that God would show us where the needs are, the practical needs are, that need to be met, and where the resources that we have can meet those needs and where he wants us to serve. We'd love you to pray about that with us. 
So I've mentioned uh, previously, we'd like to start a prayer meeting, actually, to, to think about this and to think about how we can reach Chippenham and how we can reach our community, how we can care for each other and in practical ways, and how, how we can care for people's spiritual needs. That's the, the, the main need we have in our town, isn't it? People desperately need Jesus. Let's not forget that. And we have that resource. We have a relationship with the living God to share with people. That's the biggest thing we can do. So as we think about that and as we pray together, we'd like, to, we'd like to start praying together about that. And so we're going to start a prayer meeting actually on a Thursday morning. Um, so if, you, if you'd like to come and join us, it'll be six till seven. We'd love that. Um, we'd love you to join us. It'll be at my house. Um, we're going to start it probably every other week um, from this Thursday. So please do come. And we'd love to, to pray about that with you together as we seek God. His heart is for us not to just say, say that we're Christians. His heart is for us to, to live it out in, in, in practical ways. So James makes this point. It's a, it's a powerful point. But he's aware there's an objection to what he's saying. There's aware there's people in the churches who are saying, well, you have faith and I have works. They're saying, well, um, there's certain types of people in the church who are the, the intellectual theological people. Um, they're the people who are concerned with believing things right. You can get on with that. There's other people in the church who are concerned with the practical stuff, getting involved with helping people in the community. We'll get on with that and we'll sort of help each other out. You do the thinking, we'll do the acting, and we'll sort of balance each other. And we'll, we'll cover all the bases. That's what um, the argument he, he brings out in verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. But James says, no, absolutely not. You can't divide them. Because if you have a belief, it has to show in the way you live. You can't just believe something in an ivory tower and it not make a difference. It has to make a difference. He says, you show me your faith apart from works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You can't separate them. The way that someone lives shows what they believe, shows where their heart is. Actually, the people who think this have got a misunderstanding of what faith is, and James wants to correct that. So the people who are saying this, they think that faith is basically like um, reciting a creed. Has anyone been to a church where they do kind of creeds and liturgy? Um, I, I grew up in a church that didn't do that, and we don't do that, but a lot of churches do. And it's great. I've got nothing against it. Actually, I find it really helpful um, in, in some ways. And I went to a, ch- uh, a, a school growing up between the ages of 11 and 18 that was a Church of England school. So two or three times a year, we would all troop off to Coventry Cathedral and we would go to a, a Eucharist service. And there would be liturgy. Um, and you, you read the sort of set words. And it's actually, I mean, if you believe in Jesus and you love him, there's a lot of good about it. It sort of focuses your mind and someone else has done the the thinking for you and how to phrase your prayers. Um, but we'd say these words. We used to uh, recite the Apostles' Creed. Um, I believe in uh, God, the, the, I'll get this wrong now, the, the maker of heaven and earth, and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, um, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, that, that sort of thing. You're reciting stuff that you believe. And I'd be standing there um, saying this stuff, and next to me, uh, my friends, who absolutely no interest in Christianity, no evidence of a faith, and they would say the same things, and we'd go out and just carry on as we were. So they were, they were saying these words. It made absolutely no difference to the way they lived. It's just reciting a creed. And they might have believed some of the stuff in theory. If you'd asked them, do you believe in Jesus, that he was born and suffered and died and rose? They'd be like, yeah. But it's got no, no connection with their life. And James is saying, if that's what you think faith is, you couldn't be more wrong. Faith is so much more than just intellectually believing something. Because, well, even the demons believe the right things about God, don't they? They believe there is one God, but they haven't got faith. 
They, they hear about God and they shudder, James says, because they know that they're against God and they know that God's against them. And it's a, it's a, it's a personal thing. It's not just a head thing. The belief is it's massively important to believe the right things, don't get me wrong. But faith is more than that. So James has he showed us what faith isn't. He's made that pretty clear. And what he goes on to do next is to show us two examples of what faith is, what real faith is, and to show how it works itself out in practical ways. So the first place he goes is probably the, one of the most famous characters in the Bible, uh, the character of Abraham. So he picks that up in verse 20. Um, so I'll just read verses 20 through 23. Um, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. So when we first meet Abraham in the Bible, um, he doesn't know God and God comes and meets him and gives him these amazing promises. He promises Abraham he's going to be a father of a great nation, loads of people, and God is going to bless the world through his offspring, through his descendants. And Abraham goes on a bit of a journey of faith. There's ups and downs. He ends up waiting a long time, making quite a few mistakes along the way. But eventually, God does keep his promise. And he gives Abraham the promised son to his wife, Sarah, a son, Isaac. So Isaac's born, he grows up. And then in Genesis 22, God drops a bombshell. He says, I'm going to... Well, he doesn't tell Abraham he's testing him, but he decides to test Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to do something for me. I want you to take your son, your precious son Isaac, whom you love, and I want you to offer him as a burnt offering on the mountain that I'm going to tell you about. What? Abraham's waited for this son for literally decades. He's here. He's the son of promise. God's going to bless the world through him. And God's saying, kill him. And the way Abraham responds to that is quite incredible. Abraham gets up early in the morning, saddles his donkey, takes two servants, brings his son with him, gets the firewood on his back, and travels for three days to the mountain where God shows him. Gets to the foot of the mountain and says to his servants, you stay here, me and the boy are going to go and worship, and we'll come back to you. What's going on? He knows what's going to happen. We find later in the Bible What's going on in Abraham's head is he's thinking, well, God gave me this son by a miracle. He can raise him from the dead. So God must have a purpose in this. I'm going to obey him because I trust him. And God can bring my son back from the dead. So he goes. They're walking to the, to the mountain. They walk up the mountain. His son Isaac looks up at him and says, Daddy, we've got the wood for the burnt offering, but where's the lamb? Can you imagine the dagger in Abraham's heart? He says, son, God will provide the lamb. They get up to the top of the mountain. Isaac puts the wood on the altar. He binds his son, takes the knife out. He's going to kill his son. And God says, stop. God calls and says, Abraham, stop. Now I know that you fear me because you have not withheld your only son from me. Look, look. he opens Abraham's eyes and there's a ram in the bushes. Abraham sacrifices the ram instead of his son and they worship God. He comes back down. God says, now I know that you love me because you have done this. And James looks back to that incident in Genesis 22. And he says, that's what happens with true faith. 
this incredible act of obedience and trust, that's, that's what happens. He says, actually, he uses really strong language. He says, Abraham was justified by his works. So in that act of obedience, he was justified before God. Now, if you've got any kind of familiarity with the Bible, and particularly with, with Paul's letters in the book of um, Romans in particular, you may be feeling a tension at this point. Um, if, you, if you're not familiar with that, don't worry. Um, there's, no, there's no conflict. But I want to address it because I'm aware that there are people who will be aware of what Paul says, and it's, it's tough to understand. Well, basically, Paul says in Romans almost exactly the opposite. He says, no one is justified by works of the law. We're justified by faith alone, not by works. And James says almost the opposite. We're justified by works, not by faith. Have a look at verse, verse 24. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So what's going on? How, how are those two things compatible? Well, it's important to understand first that Paul and James are writing to different audiences. So Paul is writing to a group of people who are starting to believe that you can get right with God by doing works of the law, or that you need to do works of the law to get right with God and to stay right with God. And Paul says, no, works, stuff we do, our own righteousness, keeping the law, doesn't have anything to do with it. We're saved purely by faith. James is writing to people who are saying they're Christians and there's no evidence. They're saying they follow Jesus, but there's no, nothing to, to show for it. And he says, actually, if you've got real faith, it has to show itself. So they're writing to different audiences. They're also using the word justification in slightly different ways, and it's important to understand that. So in Paul, justification means the moment that you're made right with God. When you have faith, you're converted. He declares you innocent of your sin. He declares you righteous. That's the moment of, of, of conversion. You're justified. James is talking about justification in a slightly different sense, a sense that's actually more common in the Old Testament, which refers to a future judgment. So it's kind of a vindication uh, showing to be right of a declaration that's already been made. So for James, justified by works means at the final day, God will look at you and say, yes, he really did have faith. He really was justified by me. And the evidence of that is is his life. So do you see the difference? Paul says justification is being made right with God. James says justification is showing that you're right with God. So it's different senses. So they're they're not contradictory. And what James is saying is that this this obedience that Abraham showed demonstrated, it was evidence that his faith was real. But James is really clear, that faith came first. So look at verse 23. He says, after he's made this point, and scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what's that referring to? What's that a quote from? It's actually a quote from Genesis chapter 15. Seven chapters before Genesis 22 and many, many years before Genesis 22. And chapter 15 is a hugely important passage in the Bible, so I want us to understand what's going on there. So Genesis 15 happens, we have to rewind our kind of brains, before Abraham had Isaac. He's, he's received the promises from God, but he hasn't got kids yet. So he's in that, that sort of in-between stage of, you've said this, but you haven't done this. And uh, he's basically, in Genesis 15, um, just had a great military victory, um, so, and God's really helped him, so he should be confident and, and, and full of joy, but he's not. He's fearful. And it turns out that what, what he's really fearful about is that his legacy, everything that he's kind of worked for, uh, is going to be left to, to his servant because he's got no son. He's got no children. 
And he's, 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 he's fearful. And he's questioning, he's doubting God. He's saying, God, what, what can you give me? Because I've got no son. All these promises you've given me, they're worth nothing. I've got no child. He's, he's questioning God. And God, in an incredible act of grace and mercy and love, comes to Abraham in a vision, takes him outside, and says, Abraham, fear not. I'm your shield and your reward. Have a look at the stars. Can you count them? Abraham says, no. God says, if you can count the stars, that's how many your offspring will be. He responds to Abraham's fear with an overwhelming promise, with with grace, with love. Abraham is bowled over, and all Abraham can do is say, okay, I believe you. And that's when fireworks go off. That's the moment when he becomes a Christian. That's the moment of conversion. That's the moment that the rest of the Bible looks back on as a definition of saving faith. The moment when Abraham responds to God and says, I believe. The moment when he's, he's overwhelmed by God's promises and God's love. And he says, okay, I believe. And he's saved and he's made righteous. And James says that happens a long way before Genesis 22. And what happens in chapter 22 his incredible act of obedience and trust is just a demonstration, evidence that what happened in 15 was real. So faith is not an intellectual thing. James says, the Bible says, faith is being overwhelmed by God's love and responding to that. I don't know if you've been, ever been overwhelmed by something, really overwhelmed by something, uh, physically or emotionally. Uh, last, last summer, we went on holiday to the Isle of Wight and I'm the kind of person who, uh, when I'm near the beach, I, I feel I have to go in the sea in the summer holiday, almost on principle, because I, I grew up in Coventry, which is like almost as far away as you can get from the sea. So whatever the weather, I get down to my shorts and I run in, take the pain, <laughs> come out again, feel pleased with myself. So that's, that's me. So we're at this beach in the Isle of Wight. It was a windy day, and uh, did the normal, normal thing, uh, got ready to go, and um, there was a particular part of the beach that was really, the waves were quite high. I'm not sure why, particularly steep and very windy. So I thought, I'll go, I'll go for that bit. It'll be, it looks fun. So I braced myself, sprinted in, because that's the best way to go, right, into a cold sea. Um, jumped, the, jumped a few waves. I was feeling confident. I got over a few waves, and I, I perhaps got a bit overconfident. And I went out a bit deeper than I perhaps should have done. And I kept going. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this monster wave, probably about twice my height, um, I don't think that's an exaggeration, came up. And I'm, I'm, I'm there in the sea. I'm like, there's nothing I can do here. I just tried to jump into it. And literally, the, the, so the wave broke over me. And I was, I, I was flipped over, um, head over heels. I, I wasn't aware of where I was. Uh, I was aware at one point of my shoulder touching the sandy kind of seabed. Um, thankfully, it wasn't that deep. So I survived and I, I was uh, sort of lived to tell the tale. But that moment of, of being knocked flat by the force of the wave, I was literally head over heels on my back in the, in, in the, in the beach. Um, it was, a, it was a, an incredible experience, a frightening experience. And faith is a bit like that. It's not quite so scary because you're not being knocked over by a brutal force of nature what you're being knocked over by, what you're being hit by, is the overwhelming, unstoppable force of God's love and his promises. So faith 
is that moment when your eyes are opened to see, ah, God is God and I'm me. I'm full of failure and sin. I let him down all the time. I've rejected him. But in spite of that, God is determined to come and get me back because he loves me. His heart is for me. His desire is to be my father. And he has moved heaven and earth to do it. He's come into the world in the person of his son. And he's gone to his death. He went to his death, a brutal and horrific death so that we could be brought back into his family. Faith is that moment when you see that. Whoa, he loved me like that? Me as I am? That love is directed towards me? And it's like you're knocked flat on your back. And faith is just responding to that. It's saying, okay, I believe. I I receive what what you've done for me. I accept it. I trust you. And that's when the fireworks go off. That's when you're made righteous. That's when you're justified before God. That's what happened to Abraham, Abraham in, in Genesis 15. And because of that, he trusted God in Genesis 22 to obey. So that's the first example. That's Abraham. The second example is Rahab. Um, we can find the story of Rahab in uh, Joshua chapter 2. And he went, James refers to it in verse 25 here. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So we come across Rahab when the Israelites are entering Canaan, the promised land, for the first time. They've just been in the desert for 40 years. They enter the, the promised land, and the first major obstacle is this city called Jericho. It's a walled city. It's pretty intimidating. And Rahab lives in the city. Um, so Joshua, who's the kind of ruler of Israel at the time, sends in a couple of spies to sort of scope out the land. And Rahab is working as a prostitute. She's got a bit of a shady past, and the, she, but she's heard about the Lord, the God of Israel. We, we learn in Joshua, she's heard about what he's done, bringing his people out of Egypt. She's heard about what he's done to the surrounding kings, and she, she says, he's the real God. He's the God of heaven and earth, and I want in on that. So when the spies come from Israel, and they come to her house, probably with equally shady motives, and the soldiers come knocking on her door because they've seen them, she doesn't hand them over. She takes a massive risk, she hides the soldiers, and uh, the spies, sorry, and says to the soldiers, they're not here. They went the other way. Go and look for them. Soldiers go off and look for them. Spies are safe. She says to the spies, show me the same kindness I've showed you. When you come to attack Jericho, save me and my family. So that's what um, James is referring to in this, in this passage. She's taking a massive risk here. If she's found out, it will mean instant death for her and her family. But She's had her eyes opened, same as Abraham, to who God is and his purposes, his plans to bless the world through his people. And she says, wow, I want in on that. And so she, in that moment of of faith, she is is justified. And that faith then leads her to take that risk. It leads her to take a step of identifying her with God's people, a risk to herself and her family. So it's the same thing. She's justified in that moment by faith. And her works then justify her by showing her faith to be real. Do you get what James is saying? So these two examples that he gives, they couldn't be more different. So Abraham is uh, kind of the father of faith. He's a hugely respected character. Loads of the Bible looks back to Abraham. Rahab was this woman from the fringes, a foreigner and a prostitute, morally dubious. And James puts them side by side. 
And that's not a mistake. He does that for a reason. He's saying people of faith, people with real, genuine faith are from across the spectrum. And whoever has faith, wherever you are on the spectrum, that faith will result in action. So Abraham and Rahab, actually, they're the same. And it's the same for us, too. Wherever we are on the spectrum, James is making the point, if we have real, genuine faith, it will result in action. It has to. There's always going to be inconsistencies, right? There always will be, till the day we die. Even someone like George Verwer, who we heard from last week, he would say there's inconsistencies in his life. And James isn't saying, if you have faith, you have to be perfectly consistent in, in all your actions. He's not saying be perfect. He's saying there has to be some difference. Um, I, I first, in my story, first made a profession of faith when I was age 12. So I grew up in a Christian family. I knew all about Jesus. Um, around the age of 12, a good friend of mine um, was baptized, said he was a Christian. And to be honest, I was scared of what would happen if I didn't become a Christian. I was scared of hell. And I didn't want to be left out. So I, I said, I want to be baptized too. I knew the right things to say, and I was baptized. And that happened age 12. But there was no real difference in my life. If you, if you saw me at school, you wouldn't have known. I was still at school quite um, rebellious, a bit kind of rubbing the teachers up the wrong way. Um, I didn't tell my friends anything about what I did on Sundays. I lived basically two lives, one on, on Sundays and at home, and the other at school. Um, then age 14 a friend invited me to a camp, summer camp. I went along to this camp, and I met there for the first time, what it felt like the first time, was people my age who genuinely loved Jesus and were passionate about him and wanted to live for him and serve him. And I thought, wow, that's different. People who actually love him and who engage with him in a, in a, a real kind of dynamic relationship. I thought, I, I want that, and I realized I could have it, and I realized, I think for the first time, that God wanted that with me. He wanted to be my father, and he wanted me to be his child and relate to him. And I think that week was the week I became a Christian. That was the week I really, God birthed in me a, a hunger for him, a desire for him, a desire to know him and, and live for him. And I remember really, I remember really clearly um, leaving one of the evening meetings that week on the camp. And I'd been, I'd been singing and hearing, heard a talk and praying. And I, I left the meeting a bit early because um, it was going on a bit. Um, and I remember walking alone out of the meeting and, and talking to God and saying, um, God, what, what do you want me to do? I'm yours. I'm, I'm your servant. And I walked into the dormitory bit of the building, and there were some, kind of, some kids who were a bit kind of on the fringes, and a bit, uh, they were smoking in the smoker's corner, a bit rebellious. And um, I, I just felt a little, a little prompt from God. Go and speak to them. You're asking me what you want me to do. Um, go and speak to them. And I, that was way out of my comfort zone. So I didn't do anything at first. I kept walking. And I felt the little prompt again. Go and speak to them. So I turned around and walked up to them, spent the rest of the evening chatting, hanging out. And nothing amazing happened. None of them repented on their faces. And, um, but the point was, I responded. And I wouldn't have done that. I would never have done that if it wasn't for, for God's spirit, I think, living in me. I got back to, to school after that summer, and things were different. I told my friends I was a Christian, I talked to people about, about God. I found myself praying and reading the Bible because I wanted to, not because I had to. Um, things changed. Before, I professed faith, but there was no obvious difference in my life. After, there was a change. I did things I would never have done otherwise that involved 
risk and a bit of cost and sacrifice, nothing major, but for me it was a, a big deal. That's what James is saying. If your faith, if you're not seeing a difference, then perhaps that shows it's not real faith. I think what James is saying is that those periods, 12 to 14 in my life, I wasn't, it wasn't real faith. I wasn't really a Christian. And look, you may be feeling worried at this point, thinking, oh, I'm, there's so many areas of my life where I'm not living out my faith and I'm not putting it into practice. And, and I see inconsistencies in myself and I'm sure you do in you. But the point isn't that we're meant to be perfect. The point is there should be at least some, some difference, some change in our lives. But the question does still remain, well, if I believe in Jesus, why are those gaps still there? Why aren't I more different? And that's what I want to address just before we finish. If, if, if this is the way it is, if faith does result in actions and does result in works, then why don't we see more, more change? Why don't we as a church and as individuals see ourselves living it out more? And to try and answer that question, it might help to go back to the, the picture of, of the sea. Um, remember I said conversion is like being hit by a wave. Uh, it's like when you're kind of drowning. I want to just sort of extend that analogy a bit. So the sea is like the life of God. Um, God is not just uh, a single person. God is three persons united. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. And the life of God is one of glorious, self-giving, joyful, other-centered love. It's pure love. And it's wonderful. It's, It's full of joy and delight. That's the life of God. He created us to share in his life. Just like fish are created to to live in the sea, he created us to share in his life. But we don't live there. Ever since Adam and Eve left the garden and turned their back on God, it was like they were leaving the ocean and trying to start a life as fish on dry land. They're living apart from God. And what does life look like on dry land? It's it's the opposite to God's life. It's self-centered, it's glory-grabbing, it's trying to be independent. And it doesn't work. Life on dry land without God results in sickness, pain, decay, ultimately death. But we believe the lie that this is the way life is meant to be. We all believe. We're told by our society, you're the king. It's about you first. Take care of number one. That's the way life is meant to be, we're told. And we believe it. Now, when you become a Christian, like I said, it's like in the sort of image, it's like a wave coming over you. And you're brought back into the sea, the life that God made for you. And faith is saying, okay, I trust you. The thing is that the life that God made for us, that life, it looks and feels very different to the life we're meant to, uh, we're we're used to. Because it involves sacrificing ourselves. It involves self-giving. It involves perhaps suffering and discomfort. And because we believe the lie that life on dry land apart from God is the the way it's meant to be, we think that's that God's life is bad for us. We think when he calls us to sacrifice, when he calls us to costly obedience, we think that's bad for us. But it's not. It's good for us. It's the good life. God's life is the good life. The life he's calling us to in James is the good life. It might feel hard. It might look hard. But it's not. It's the water's good. It's the life of God. It's delightful and it's joyful. And James says, swim in it. Swim in the water. It's good. God's a good father and he wants only good for you. So he calls us to the good life. We think it's bad for us. 
There's one more thing about swimming in the sea. Is that what you're swimming in is God's unconditional love. God's unconditional acceptance and favor of you. So nothing you do, no works, no goodness, is going to make any difference to how he feels about you and your status. You're his child, you're loved by him, you're accepted purely by his grace. And we enter by being overwhelmed by that grace and saying yes. So nothing we do is going to make a difference to that. And that gives us the freedom to have a go at obeying him, at doing good works, at radical obedience. Have a go, knowing that our success or failure doesn't make one difference, one bit of difference to our status. And that's what James calls us to. He's not calling us to leave and try harder to make sure you really are a Christian. He's calling us to believe that God's your father and he's for you and he wants the best for you and to experience the joy of living out your faith with him. Let me pray. We'll finish there. We'll take a minute, as I said, to just reflect. If you've got questions, please, please, uh, please do ask them and then we'll come back and we'll, we'll try and answer them. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your incredible, gracious love for us. Thank you for that moment of faith, that moment of seeing you and seeing your goodness for the first time. We pray that would, that would be a moment that each of us experiences um, even, even now and this week as we go about our daily life. I pray that we would, we would see your goodness, we would see your love for us and that that would change us. It would result in us being willing to take a risk, being willing to obey you um, in ways that are costly and radical um, because we know that you love us and because, um, because you've turned our lives upside down. Father, please work in us, we pray. Amen.